All right, let's open up our Bibles to Zechariah. The book of Zechariah has been what we've been feeding on in these chapels since the um, alumni retreat is next Monday. Uh, I will not be in chapel, Lord willing. Uh, Pastor Holt will be back again. <clears throat> Amen. God is good. He really blessed us last time, and I know He's going to bless us again. Zechariah is a prophet unto the people of Israel after their exile and their return to the land of Israel. He is sent to encourage Zerubbabel, who's the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, to rebuild the temple. We're now in Zechariah chapter 6, and today's message is entitled, The Temple of God. Everybody say, The Temple of God. So you're going to learn now a prophecy that he was giving to Joshua concerning the literal temple of God that was going to be rebuilt in the land of Israel. And that temple of God became the same temple that Jesus walked into when he was on the earth. That second temple became known as Herod's temple because during uh, the time of King Herod, about 50 years before Jesus, they began to do remodeling and working and expanding of it. But this is nonetheless that temple. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariots had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the world of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going towards the north country. The one with the white horses towards the west. The one with the dappled, or which would be spotted, horses towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were all straining to go out throughout the earth. And he said, go out throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Amen. They went throughout the earth. Where'd they go? Throughout the earth. Then he called to me, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Now, when we come into interpreting prophecy, one of the things that we have to remember is, is, is if it does not come with a literal interpretation, then all we can offer is what our best guess is. Remember, we talked about that last week. So I'm not now going to interpret this as being the United Nations, this now being something that we don't know. Well, if you go back to Zechariah uh, chapter 1, verse 18, you'll see that there was a reference to another four, and this time it was to four horns. Uh, Zechariah 1, 18, then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So what we are assuming, as I've studied through commentators, and I say we, just commentators, scholars, etc., preachers of the Gospels, we're assuming that the same four horns that are mentioned in Zechariah are now the same four chariots of different colors mentioned in Zechariah chapter 6. 
And so, who are those four horns or four chariots? They are nations that have scattered Israel. Now, our best guess as to who that could be is we would say that the red horses or a horn, because it doesn't differentiate the horns in Zechariah chapter 1, but it does differentiate the chariots by color, would be the red would be Babylon because they're come going to the north. The black would be Persia because they're, um, excuse me, the red would be Babylon, and it doesn't mention in Zechariah where the red ones go, if you notice. It only says the black, the dappled, and the white. Okay, so the red being Babylon, even though they came from the north, they're not mentioned as the north. Persia, knowing it came from the north, representing the black. The white, representing the Greek, going toward the west. And the spotted being the Romans, going toward the south. Now, once again, you may not take this literally. That's up to you. Also, in the study of the horns, I saw that Egypt and Philistine, uh, the Philistines were mentioned as a possible another group. So you have six options for these four horses, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greek, Rome, uh, the Philistines, and the uh, people of Egypt. Now, whether or not we know specifically these are the ones being mentioned, we do not know. But we know that all of these nations, in one way or another, scattered and messed with the Jews. Amen? And if this is now a prophecy in chapter 6, it's more uh, right to think that these would be future nations coming, the Greeks and the Romans, who had not come on the scene yet, and that possibly Zechariah chapter 1 is replacing those two with Egypt and Philistine because they were on the scene at the time of the captivity. And then now this is talking about a future prophecy. And so Greek, Greece and Rome will come later and mess with the Jews. Either way, you can take that as you want. But the bottom line is people messed with the Jews and scattered them throughout the earth. Now, the interesting verse is in verse 8 where it says, Then he called to me and said, Look, those going towards the north have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Well, if you hold with these being the Persians, then you would understand that the black going towards the north, the Persians had taken over the Babylons who are already in the north, and the Persians were then beginning to be kind to the Israelites. If you remember the story of Esther. Those were Persians, okay? If you then remember who sent them back to the land of Israel, it's the Persians. Are you all with me? Who's the one that protected the Jews from their enemies in the land of the uh, Palestinian area who wanted to attack them? It was the Persians. And so this can mean that now the Persians are favoring the Jews in some way. It can mean that my spirit has gone out and found rest in the land of the north. That's what it can mean. Or it can mean that now the judgments that Babylon and the part, partial time of, uh, of Persia has brought is now over, so there's no more judgment. Either way, you can interpret rest as being favor from the Persians or God no longer judging. You can interpret that verse to mean that because it's interesting on how it is. Now, if you remember when I told you before that these verses are more like Revelation than any other book in the Bible, do you not remember that in the book of Revelation there's what? Four horsemen. And then they have colors and they represent the judgment upon the earth, which we don't have time to talk about, but just remember that 
Zechariah is the most revelatory, symbolic book of the Old Testament, and it's most like Revelation. Amen? Just something to think about. But let's now go to our text and what the message is today on the temple of God. Verse 9, The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldiah, Tobajah, and Jedidiah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldiah, Tobijah, and Jedidiah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. So the word here is Zechariah is saying to them, hey, this is what God is saying. We're going to build this temple. We're going to actually do this. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to set up Joshua, the priest, as a king, as a ruler of God's people. And you see, the intention was never for us to have, or never for the Israelites to have a king like the other nations, but to always have a ruler that would be a prophet and a priest unto the people, like Moses, you remember? And then Joshua, and then the judges, and then it was the people of Israel who said, give us a king like the world. And so what this crown is symbolizing is, is the authority is not going to come through government anymore. It's going to come through the priesthood and men having relationship with God. Now, this sounds all cute and lovey-dovey and that we should just end it right here and just say, well, these Jews had such a blessing and wow, this temple was awesome. But if you begin to read from that point on the history of the Jews, nothing significant happens in this temple anymore. Nothing significant happens in the land of Israel. As a matter of fact, right after this temple is built, in the last book of the Bible of the Old Testament is wrote Malachi, these 400 years of silence come because what you begin to see is that the Jewish people become inward in their traditions. They become like Pharisees, what you then see on Jesus' scene, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You see revolutionaries like the Maccabees who fight for Jewish freedom against the Greeks and the people who are occupying their land. And so when we read this now in the context of the New Testament, we do not think of this as Joshua, just the priest of the people of Israel and him being that branch. We understand that that's what it meant to them, that Joshua was going to be a leader, that God's authority was going to come back. But how do we take it in the New Testament? First of all, we apply this to Jesus because even the name is the same. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yahshua, Joshua, and that means Jehovah saves. So it's not only a symbolic or a prophetic reference, it's actually the exact name that he will have. 
Number two, the branch rightly fits Jesus better than any priest will ever have that, that ability because it says it will branch out and build the temple of the Lord. Well, we know when Jesus comes, he doesn't build a temple of brick and stone. He builds a temple in people's hearts, and this is the fruit of it. He will build a temple and will be clothed with majesty. Now, that can still be talking about a man, oh, he's going to be majestic in his power. But come on, who really is clothed in majesty? This is an old school song. If you don't remember, we know this is the, this is the God of heaven and earth. And yet his place is to come and be a priest on the throne. And then it says there will be harmony between the two. Where do we understand there to be disharmony between? Anybody ever seen the picture of the Sistine Chapels of God and man trying to reach and touch each other, yet they are separated? The Bible says there is one God and man, and there's only one meteor between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when he was crucified and the temple veil was rent in two, that was his flesh bringing a holy God to unholy people through his sacrifice. Come on. So you see now that this is clearly a prophecy about Jesus coming to be the branch and the establisher of a temple that all people will come and worship Him in, and in that temple He will be clothed in majesty. So let us not belabor and spend our time learning about the Old Testament temple. And I think that you should, you know, and it has its place. But for us not to get so Jewish in in our understanding of Jesus, even though he was Jewish, he didn't come to support the Jewish practice of sacrifice, the Jewish practice of the incense. You know, some Christians, and praise God, they want to go to the Holy Land, and I think we should. There's so many wonderful things there. And in, you know, Orlando, you can go see the Holy Land there, and that's great. But listen to me. Jesus did not come just to make the Jewish religion as it was to be the religion for the Gentiles. Jesus came to fulfill the Jewish faith and understanding of their worship and practice of God and bring in the fullness. The differences would be like this. What would you rather have? The shadow of your husband or wife or your husband or wife? Come on. So when we talk about these Old Testament things, sometimes Christians want to become so mystical, and they want to say, oh, we're going to celebrate Passover now. Oh, and we're going to, you know, put the Ark of the Covenant in our church, or we're going to decorate these things and kind of be half, you know, Old Testament, half New Testament. No, listen to me, my friends. It's all or nothing in the New Testament. Paul said either you go back and you start slaughtering bulls, you start going to the temple, or you... Do not count that as your righteousness. You're righteous in Christ. Now, at the same time, we don't say that the Old Testament's not scriptural. This has no value because there is value in studying the temple. And the temple had two courts, the inner and outer court. The, the uh, outer court was the place where sacrifice was done. The brazen altar made of brass. Then the brazen um, uh, water basin where you would wash your hands, the, the brazen laver made out of brass. So the priests would sacrifice, then they would wash their hands. Then they would go into the inner court, which was divided into two places, the holy place and the most holy place. In the holy place was three items, the table of showbread, 
12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They had the menorah, the seven candlesticks representing the seven manifestations of the Spirit of God as we've seen that is in heaven. And then the altar of incense, burning the incense forever as a prayer memorial to God, representing the prayer of the saints. There was a veil that separated the holy to the most holy place. That veil represented man's flesh, his sinfulness, and not being able to be in the presence of God. And when Jesus took sin, he ripped it in two, saying that I became perfect so that you who are not can have a relationship with God. And then in that most holy place was only one um, piece of article, and that was called the Ark of the Covenant that looked like a treasure chest with two beams that they would carry it on. And on both sides of the top of it, of the platform of that chest, were angels. And then that part in the middle was called the mercy seat, where the priest would take on the Day of Atonement the blood that was dipped in a branch that was known as hyssop. It was a branch, and you would take the blood from a sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Then inside that Ark of the Covenant was the uh, table, I mean the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the tablets that God had given Moses the second time, Aaron's rod that had budded in a test of who had the priesthood and manna that the people of God had eaten as a sign to God's miraculous power. Do you understand? When the temple was destroyed, all of those things were taken to Babylon. The only thing we do not know what happened to it was the Ark of the Covenant and the search for that is still on and you can find Indiana Jones and his best guess at where it's at. <clears throat> Excuse me. But when they were rebuilding this temple, they didn't have the Ark. And that's why I believe from this point forward, as you saw in the time of Solomon when they dedicate the temple, the glory comes. You never see from this point forward the glory being in the temple. As I said, the Bible gets quite silent after this time period. Malachi happens just maybe 30 to 40, 50 years after this at the most. And so before you know it, you're into these 400 years of silence and there ain't really nothing going on in that temple. It's just acts of obedience, people being righteous, but there's no glory, there's no signs and wonders, there, there's no prophecy, there's no divine revelation of who God is. <clears throat> Until you come on the scene, and then Jesus comes. And what does He say? He first starts off by saying, If you destroy this temple, in three days I will rise it up again. So what does He first teach us when He comes in the New Testament? That He Himself is the temple. Now why does He come along and tell us He's the temple? Because where was the Spirit of God in the Old Testament in that temple? Where the Ark of the Covenant was. And when Jesus was on the earth, where was the Spirit of God? It was upon Him. He was the mercy seat. He was the place of atonement. He was the place where the blood was poured out. So He Himself became the carrier of God's presence. Think about that. So he's walking around saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm the walking ark of the covenant. I am the law of God. I am the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Word. Okay? He is the Ten Commandments. He is the priesthood according to Melchizedek. Before Abraham, before Aaron was Melchizedek according to Hebrews. He says, I am the priesthood, the rod that budded. Are you listening? He's the manna, the bread of life. He says, if you want to eat and, and have eternal life, you must eat of my flesh. 
And upon him is the sin of the world eventually on the cross and a sacrifice. Are you with me? So here he is as the walking ark of the covenant. Here he is where the glory of God is at. And he says, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will rise it up again. Now at that point you would get the understanding. Well, let's just go right from sacrifice on the cross, Calvary, to new heaven and new earth, baby. Come on, let's go. Here comes the resurrected Lord Jesus. Let's worship Him. We don't need a temple anymore. Let's just have church. Amen? But hold on. He said to the people, now you have to go to all nations. Why? Because of part of this prophecy that you see right here. That He will be clothed in majesty. But look at the branch. The branch will branch out from His place. And as you learned about the branch previously in Zechariah chapter 3, that the branch, chapter 3, verse 9, or verse um, 8 rather, says, I'm going to bring my servant the branch, and then go down to verse 10, in that day each one of you invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. So what did we have to do? We had to go out and get the world to be engrafted in to the branch of Jesus Christ. You see, if Jesus 2,000 years ago would have said, let's now start this visible kingdom of God in judgment and just worship me and I'm just bringing this whole thing to a close right now, we never would have been there. And you see, from the time of God creating Adam and Eve, He knew from the beginning the end. He knew the seed and the descendants that would come from Adam and Eve. And He had a number, He had a chosen people that He wanted to bring with Him to be in eternity. And so at that time, 2,000 years ago, He wasn't happy with that number. There wasn't enough of Adam's seed yet brought in. And that's why for 2,000 years we've been preaching the gospel to gather in God's people. So many times we think of ourselves going out to win the soul. No, we don't win the soul. We know that. God wins the soul. So really, what are we going out doing? Gathering them in. We're inviting them to the wedding feast. We're gathering in the ones that God already foreknew would be coming. And I don't want to open up the discussion of Calvinism or Arminianism, but of course, we are Arminianists. We believe in free will, but you still, as a free will person, have to believe that God already knew who would choose Him. So it's no surprise when you and I got on the boat of the called and the chosen. It was no surprise that we are where we are now. Jesus knew way back then. And that's why, though He is the temple and the glory and the presence of God, and He Himself, His blood, is the sacrifice, we then get a revelation that now the temple, now the place of meeting, is going to come into men's hearts. Go with me to the book of John, chapter 20. The last chapter of John. John emphasizing more on the Holy Spirit than anyone else. John chapter 21. As a matter of fact, I was right. John chapter 20, verse 21. Excuse me. 
Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now here you see not only the transference of the Holy Spirit, but the transference of the priesthood, which would only take place in the temple because they forgave men their sins. Are you understanding this? Think about this. So he is now saying, hey man, you got the Holy Spirit, you got the priesthood. Well, what does that make you now? The temple of God. Hello, think about it. What did the priests do in the temple? Forgive men their sins. They, you know, of course, they didn't become the sacrifice, but they pronounced forgiveness. And, and this is where con- confession in the Catholic Church comes from. And is it biblical to confess? Yes. And is it biblical for us to uh, uh, say to people they are forgiven? Absolutely. Because we are supposed to speak on behalf of God. We are that priest. That's what he told them. So somebody comes to the altar... They pray to God. They ask for forgiveness. Maybe they confess it to you. As a leader, they say, you know, I've been struggling with pornography. I'm asking the Lord to forgive me. You say, ask the Lord to forgive you like this. Say, Lord, forgive me, you know, cleanse me. And they start crying and weeping. And they're in the presence of God. And at that moment, you feel the Holy Spirit discerning their spirit. The gift of discerning the spirit. you discerning that their spirit is full of God. You can look at them and say, your sins are forgiven. God has forgiven you. Not on your account, of course, not because of anything you've done, but what you're doing is just saying what God said. If you forgive, they're forgiven. So now, after this point, in the day of Pentecost, where does this temple come? To you and I. You want to see that you're the temple of God today? You want to learn about this? Come on, are you guys ready for the message now? Because that was the introduction, and i got to go through this quickly. But I'm going to make sure that we take our time and get it. Are you ready to learn about how you are the temple of God? Yes. Come on, let's go to the first most important one to go to, 2 Corinthians. Or 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians, the most important verse that I feel that expresses this. So there are so many. And if you like Numbers 3.16, you find a lot of cool 3.16 for Timothy 3.16, John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, Revelation 3.16. And here's 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? You see, how does He, the, the writer Paul here, justify the point that you are God's temple? He says, because God's Spirit lives in you. And you know that's why I showed you John? Because when he breathed on him, gave him the power to forgive, that was his way of saying, you're now the temple of God. And see, what I like to say is that the Gospels are the general words of God from Jesus. Jesus didn't sit and write word after word. He didn't write a novel. He just lived and acted in the disciples recalled by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these general events. You know, it doesn't say Jesus woke up, yawned, thought about his day, ate a couple fishes you know it doesn't draw out his life like that just says he did this 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 and this are you understanding but the epistles go into the details you see 
Jesus says, love your neighbor. That's all Jesus says. Love your neighbor. Come on. Do unto them as you want done unto you. But Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is this. You understand? So he takes the general word of God and says, now let, let me take this into detail. And Jesus himself said that that would happen, that the Holy Spirit would reveal all things unto them, that Jesus said, I don't have time to tell unto you now. So right here you see Paul calling it out. Hey guys, you're the temple of God. How do I know that? Because it's God's Spirit that dwells in you. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, holy, and you are that temple. Who is the temple of God today, my friends? Where is the temple of God today? And what does that word temple mean? I'm sorry for not sharing it at the beginning. It means meeting place with God. A place of worship and sacrifice unto God. Now, obviously, it can mean unto a God and be in the pagan context. But in the context of the Bible, the temple is the place men meet with God where people sacrifice and worship God. That is the temple. Well, where do you meet with God? In your soul. In your innermost being. Where do you offer sacrifices and worship unto God? In your innermost being. In your soul. With your body glorifying God. Amen? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Paul really had a revelation of this. He now encompasses his revelation of us being the temple of God with the prophecies of the Old Testament. Start in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Beel? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there with the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God had said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then the laws that were once applied to a building are now applied to us. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I don't know who started a new chapter there, but it shouldn't be there. Even the NIV recognizes it's still part of that section. Do you understand? You are the temple of God. Where does God dwell within you? And therefore, what do you do? Because you have this wonderful blessing from God. You come out from among evil. You come out from among wickedness of this world. And you live holy unto God. Look at what it says. That you perfect holiness. You know, people say nobody's perfect. But you know, we are supposed to strive for perfection. 
It is not an excuse that our failings keep us from fulfilling God's Word. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He is stronger than our sins. He is stronger than our temptations. And therefore, we are to perfect holiness. We are to constantly go after the things that God loves and to run away from the things that God hates. We are to hate those things that He hates and to love those things that He loves. Why? Because we reverence God. We fear the Lord. We have a holy fear for God. This is what He would do if I disobeyed Him. And this is what my life would be like without Him. That is a healthy fear of the Lord. And so clearly, beyond any shadow of a doubt, Paul, taking the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the illumination from the Scriptures, shows us clearly, you are the temple of God. How are you going to live now? Come on. How are you going to live? Are you going to bring pornography into God's temple? Are you going to bring perversion, anger, deceit, wickedness into God's temple? Are you going to fall in love with an idol, or as the Bible says, an unbeliever? And let them into your body, the temple, through sexual relationship. Come on. That's what the Bible says. That's what it's warning about here. Are you going to compromise your faith as Micah did with ten shekels and a shirt to become a half-hearted priest unto God, which is really no priest at all, and do it just for material blessings to beautify your body? Oh, well, if I work at this church, they tell me not to speak in tongues. Oh, but they have a great insurance package, Pastor. They will pay my insurance. But, you know, they just said don't speak in tongues, and that's okay. I don't look at it like the way I used to. You know, it says, you know, don't do it unless you have an interpretation. So you know what? I'll just do it privately in my own prayer time. That's no big deal. I can help a lot of people that way. Come on, friends, don't sacrifice. Don't compromise the things of God, thinking that you're doing anybody a favor. When one man, Uzzah, reached out to touch the ark outside of what God had ordained the ark to be carried, when he went to touch it, it was never told to be touched because they had it on carts and it was never supposed to be on carts. Only the priests were supposed to carry it. When he reached out, no matter how good his intentions were, no matter how holy he might have been living, when he went outside of God's prescribed way of dealing with God's presence, he died. Don't play with the things of God. Don't play with holiness. No, we're not going to get into a discussion of how long women's hair should be. Because the Bible says the women should not cut their hair. Well then, pastor, how long should my hair be? And then the Bible says that it's not to a man's glory to have long hair. Well then, pastor, how long can I grow my hair out and still be acceptable? No, we're not going to be hairstylists and clothesline preachers. Clothesline talking about the clothes that you wear. Well, Pastor, what is acceptable? Can I have a piercing? Can I have a tattoo? Can I wear this? Do I not wear this? No, you see, the Spirit of God is in you, and you are to be led by the Spirit. 
And the things that we're talking about that are sin and things that are holy, the Bible says are obvious in Galatians chapter 5. These things are obvious. Sexual immorality, debauchery, drunkenness, anger, discord, wrath, fits of rage, heresy, witchcraft, which is another word for pharmakeia, drug use. Are you listening? And then what are the obvious fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. So as the temple of God, you are to live holy. You are to live with the fruit of the Spirit branching out of your life and denying the sinful nature. And it should be obvious to people who have the Spirit of God that you're living holy. Amen? Now I'm going to tell you three things that you're going to do in this temple. The old temple was marked by three distinctives. Number one, it had a priesthood. Number two, they had sacrifices. And number three, the Sheikah Boomba Kabod glory of the Lord was in the house. Kabod is glory in the Hebrew, and it means deep covering or thick covering. Let's start with the priesthood. Go to First Peter chapter two, verse five. You now know that you are the temple of God. Well, in any temple, there needs to be priests. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, one of my favorite scriptures. It reads, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody! You get to be in the temple of God in your private prayer time right here in your bosom and offer spiritual sacrifices to the God of heaven and earth. What an honor that when you pray on the inside, the temple of God is ignited with the power and the presence of God. What was there with the ark is now with you and even a hundredfold because the Bible says those in the past long for the days we have now. So don't become so Jewish and mystical when you say, oh, i got to go back and celebrate the Passover. No, listen to me, man. If Moses saw what you had now, he would say, man, I'll, have all, I'll trade all of this for one moment in the glory of God like you do. He says, I don't got to sacrifice. I don't got to wear these clothes. I don't got to kill an animal. All i got to do is just come into the presence of God, offer up spiritual sacrifices. And because of Jesus, poof, there's the presence of the Lord. You are the priesthood of God. And the Bible then goes on to draw this wonderful picture that you individually are the temple of God, but then we corporately make the temple of God. So you look at these stones right here that are being built. You could take out one of these stones and technically say, this is the temple of God. Now, this is not it in all of its fullness, but this is it. This is part of the temple of God. Here it is. This is a brick. But then you put all those bricks together, and then you have the fullness of the temple of God. And that's why the Bible says we ought to be one and be, and be in unity. Because when we are together, the fullness of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the temple of the living God shines upon this land. Praise the Lord. So not only are you the temple of God, but the Bible says you are living stones being built into a spiritual house. What an honor it is. We have nothing against those that have to go out and dig ditches and have forklift trucks and warehouses and put paint on houses and build homes and 
do taxes and teach arithmetics. Arithmetic, I have nothing against those people. We need those people, praise God. Because if somebody doesn't do my taxes, I'm messed up, amen? If somebody does not build my house, I, I do not know how to build a house. But you and I are here for the greatest calling on the planet Earth, to be leaders in the temple of God. Think about that. Governors, kings, leaders will sit in your congregations and say, teach me the ways of God. Lead me, pastor. Lead me, elder. Lead me, deacon. Lead me, apostle, prophet, evangelist, into the presence of Almighty God. Teach me His ways. Let us go to the mountain of God. Teach me His ways. My friends, you have been given the greatest privilege, and that is to serve as the priest among the priests in the temple of God. Every time you're about ready to complain and say, oh, this homework, oh, this, this, uh, this dorm duty that I have to have, I want you to follow around my brother doing roofing in Chicago in minus 10 degree weather and see what he does. Follow around a police officer. Follow around a nurse, a doctor. And look what you get to do. I would also say our jobs are harder in many ways, but listen to me, my friends. You will have the greatest job in the entire planet when you do it with all of your heart. You are serving people. You are teaching people about God. You will be able to wake up in your morning and be paid, receive substance, receive hay for the ox. You will receive substance just to study this book right here. Just to study this book right here. People will go out there and work blood, sweat, and tears jobs to give you tithe and offering to receive it in the name of the Lord, but so that you may be a priest among priests to them. That you can be a leader to them. That you can teach them this Word of God. Never take lightly the honor that you have. Because the Bible says not only are you worthy of double honor, but you will be judged twice as severely. That's why the Bible says not to think it lightly, brothers, when you want to teach. Do you not know? We who teach will be judged more severely. But what an honor it is to be in that priesthood. You see, maybe today being a SUM student is not like being a part of the 300 of the Spartans. Or maybe it doesn't feel like in our culture they look at you like the army rangers or the navy seals. But in heaven's eternal eyes, that's what you are. You are being trained to be the most radical of the radical, to be the best of the best. Who will we send to the inner city of Chicago? Send the SUM students. They will go. Who will we send to Sudan? Who will we send to Pakistan? Send the SUM students. They will go. They will start with nothing. They will live in a hut. They will live off of ramen noodles. And they will preach and pray and plug away until God opens the heavens. That is what you are called to do. You are not called to be a sissy on Sunday behind a plastic pulpit preaching polite messages as a people pleaser. 
You are to take the Word of God and preach it with Pentecostal penetrating power, with perseverance. And you're going to be tested in that. But you must remember that I am a priest among priests. I am a teacher among teachers. Because every disciple is called to be a teacher. But there has to be teachers among the teachers to raise them up. Every Christian is called to be a leader. But there has to be leaders among the leaders. There has to be priests among these people of priests. And these are the called. And they are few, but they are chosen. And that that statement that Jesus was said, many are called, but few are chosen, what that was coming from was when the Romans would come to a city, it was an honor to be in the Roman military. So all the young men would come out, and then they would have them spar against each other, fight against each other, race against each other. They would have all of these competitions, throwing spears the furthest, and they, the Roman government would only take the best of each village of each people to be in the Roman army. So many were called. Come on, come on, every young person, every young person, come on, you're going to try out, you're going to try out. And they were so excited to go. It was an honor to them because they would get well fed, they would have money, they would have citizenship, but they weren't citizens, citizens. So many were called. Come on, come on, come on, everybody, come, come. But then based on what they did, they were chosen. See, Jesus, through Paul, said, be sure of your calling, walk worthy of it. Walk worthy of your calling as priests. Walk worthy of that calling. Live holy. Live without sin. Live without blemish. If you sin, be quick to repent and turn away from it because you are a leader. Amen? Now go to sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. What are the sacrifices that you offer in this temple of God? I could stay on that subject of priesthood all day, but I must move on. I chose to be light on the Scriptures because I didn't want to bog us down with head knowledge of the Word. I want you to catch it. You are a spiritual house being built up to offer sacrifices. Never forget that. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. Hold on, this is the temple. Yeah, but you've got to offer it now as the living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. It is a spiritual act of worship when you get up and do your devotions. Because you're taking your body and giving it as a sacrifice to God in that temple. It is a spiritual act of worship when you come to chapel, any church service, and you raise your hands when you don't even feel the presence of God. It is an act of worship. It is an act of worship for you to press in, to cry out to God even when you're tired. Because when you are a leader and you go to any service, people are going to look at you and you will set the atmosphere. If you come to the service with your hands in your pockets and you say, oh, well, the band's not really getting excited yet, so I'm not going to get excited, then people will look at you that way. But when you come into a room, you should be, God is here because I'm here. Sheikaboomba, let's get down with it. Holy Ghost, I want more, more, and more. You come in as leaders offering your bodies. I've come to offer my body today. I've come to lay it down on this altar. Whether you're in Pakistan, whether you're in India, whatever part of the world you're in, however you feel, you say, I'm here to sacrifice my life for Him. Let's worship. 
Do not be conformed. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So you're just allowing this mind to be metamorphosized. The word transform is Greek for metamorphosis. It's where we get the word metamorphosized. And it's the idea of a caterpillar being transformed into a butterfly. And so we're saying, I'm getting rid of stinking thinking. And I'm going to have the mind of Christ. And I'm going to set my heart on heavenly things where Christ is seated and I am with Him in heavenly places. And I will touch heaven till I change earth. That needs to be the cry of your heart. I will touch heaven until I change earth through the power of God. I will let Him flow through me, His electric energy, His power, until it electrifies this whole world. I will set my life on fire so that the world can watch me burn. Woo! Come on, somebody. Jesus, that is what you are here to do. As your sacrifice. Come on. That doesn't sound like much of a sacrifice, does it? Oh, it may be hard sometimes, I understand. But you're not getting whipped 39 times and crowns of thorn put on your... Jesus already bought your atonement. You're not sacrificing for your atonement or your salvation. You are sacrificing because you have been saved. And you're so grateful. And your sacrifice is your thanksgiving and worship to the God of gods and the King of kings, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is always worthy of a standing ovation and a shout of praise and a dance of joy. Always He is worthy. Whether the band strikes up a good tune or not, He is worthy. And that means He's worth it. He's worth you looking like a fool. David said, I will become even more undignified than this. Why? Because He's worth it. We see men out of the heart of romance bow their knee, give rings to people, and and, and we don't call that embarrassment. But yet sometimes people in church are embarrassed to kneel, embarrassed to cry, embarrassed to let their emotions be known. But I'm telling you what, if you are a lover of God, you will know that He's worth it all and then some. Woo! Come on! All that in a bag of chips. All that and everything you can imagine. He is worth it all times a million. And the last thing is, is the glory of God is in the house. Go to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Come on, somebody. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, covering, thick covering. The glory would come as a cloud into the temple. It would be as a fire by night, a cloud by day. And on special occasions, the cloud would be so thick in the Holy of Holies that the priests could not even mentor, uh, minister in the time of King Solomon. The glory, the cloud was so thick, they couldn't even see their hand in front of their face. And the glory of God was in that house. But where is that glory now, my friends? It's in you. The glory of God is residing in you. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Arise and shine for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Am I going to hide it under a bushel? No. 
I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. I was taught that as a child in Sunday school. And I never knew that that light would follow me to the dirt floors of a village in India among pagans and a few Christian believers. But yet, when we didn't hide it under a bushel, and that young boy started playing his little hand drum, and those people, out of the risk of them being persecuted even unto death, with the pagans watching them on the streets in their village, they began to raise their hands and praise the Lord. And the glory of God came into that hut. My friends, there's an ocean out there of His glory. Don't be satisfied with that little thimbleful, that little teaspoonful, that little capful. My friends, there's an ocean out there. Don't say to yourself, oh, well, I've been to chapel a few times. I know just what to expect. We sing this one, then so-and-so shouts hallelujah at this time. Then they fall on their knee at this. No, my friend, there's more than all of that. There is the glory of God the size of all the oceans in the world. God can do things we have never seen nor heard. He is still a God of signs and wonders. What are signs and wonders? Signs that make you wonder how great is our God? How could He do such a thing? He is so amazing. He still walks on water, raises the dead, heals the sick, cleanses the leper, casts out devils. He still knows the past and the present and the future. And the glory of God is upon you, my friends. What an honor to be chosen as a vessel, the Bible says. And that Scripture that Paul talks about, he says there's many vessels in the house, some for honor and some for dishonor. How many are glad you're not the vessel called the toilet? Hello? There's a vessel in the house we call the toilet, isn't there? And it's there for a dishonorable purpose. But there's another vessel, the glass of water that refreshes the people that is cleaned, or the fine silverware that feeds people on special occasions that's made out of costly materials. Bible says, cleanse yourself from dishonorable things and be the vessel of honor. Why? Because in these jars of clay is the glory of God. Inside your cup, on your plate, is the living manna, the living water of God. And it's being served to the people around you. Don't give them the filth of this world mixed with the glory of God. You wouldn't want water if I spit in it just 0.1%. You still wouldn't want it to be 99.99% pure. And don't do that as leaders. Give people perfection of holiness as you strive for God. You may say, I'm not perfect, but your heart can be perfect by being cleansed of all the perfections, imperfections that you have. I'll say that again. You could say, well, I'm not perfect, but you could be forgiven of all your imperfections and stand in His, in his perfect righteousness. In closing, 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of my favorite scriptures. And you could actually start it in 3.16 if you want, because it's 
3.16 But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing, ever-increasing, ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It never stops increasing. Always increasing. If God has got boring to you, and being the temple of God does not excite you. It is because you are not letting Him transform you. Because the more you're transformed, the more you'll have of His glory. And the more glory you have, the more you'll want to be transformed. And the more you're transformed, the more you'll have of His glory. And the more you have of His glory, the more you'll want to be transformed. And the more you are transformed, the more you'll have of His glory. And the more you have of His glory, the more you'll want to be transformed. And you will do that from glory to glory to glory until you die and then you go to glory come on Woo! here I am building a stairway to heaven glory to glory Enoch boy you so close just take the next step you already here that could have happened Enoch could have just kept taking steps up to glory to glory in his spirit and Jesus just said just take the next one come on home son you live more up here than you do down there anyway Come on, Elijah, you just so radical. I'll come down in chariots of fire and bring you up here to give you a taste of it. Isn't that our God who comes in chariots of fire to bring His servants to glory? Is that not our God who raptures people from the earth into His presence? Are we not living in that time right now? For our God is amazing. He is glorious. And He is awesome and worthy of praise. And guess what? He's clothed in majesty. More than Joshua, the earthly priest of Zechariah, ever was. He is clothed in majesty. And He is the branch that is spreading out to all the nations. And we are those priests offering up sacrifices with the glory of God, bringing it to every neighbor, man, woman, and child, to every nation, so that they may come with us and be built up into this temple. So when Jesus comes, He may have a place to forever dwell with His people. Amen. Would you stand up on your feet as you turn with me to two Scriptures in closing. Turn with me first to Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. Remember when Jesus was here, He was the temple. Amen? Look at how it ends after we've been here in part as the temple. Revelations chapter 21, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city. Oh, come on. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
In Him we live and move and breathe and have our being. He breathed in us the Holy Spirit as a deposit so that while we're here, we'll know that one day we'll be there. And one day, my friends, as real as this world is, there will be a new world, a new earth. And as real as you're in this church building, as real as the air you're breathing, as real as you sense the love of God here, can you even imagine what it will be like there? His glory will be like the air we breathe. His very presence will be like the sun that shines, yet no shadow because it covers every millimeter minute space of heaven and earth. And it just shines on you, radiates on you. And when you call His name, He will say, Here I am. And all of us can hear Him speak to us personally. People used to read this in the dark ages and just get blown away. Atheists, you know, just used, just used to get blown away. I mean, how? How could God hear all of these things, prayers, and then answer them? And now we make computers that can have a trillion signals coming to it. Our God is so much greater than any computer. God will hear every one of the billions of voices and know that's Joe, that's Griselda, that's Ellie, that's Eddie Berto, that's Jared. You know why? Because you knew Him down here. Because you knew Him down here, you'll know Him more up there. My friends, remember where this is all headed. It's all going back to Him one day, friends. From the beginning of creation, we've been taught to dwell with God. Adam and Eve had one way out. Hey, you you want out? You want the exit? Do what you want. This is your way. Take that fruit. Listen to a tempter give you a humanist lie. And you're out of here. You don't have to walk with me if you don't want to. That was His way of saying you don't want to be close, we don't have to be. We can be as separate as you want. And when they made that decision, man is born separate from God. And man begins to try all these ways to fill that vacuum, that, that hole in his heart. He sacrifices animals to appease his own conscience in a God that thunders and brings curses upon his land. And yet God has mercy and picks out a man among pagans, Abraham, and starts a holy nation. And in that holy nation, He builds a temple that all of the tribes would face and the glory would be there, and yet it wasn't enough. They still wanted a man, a king, and to settle for their own fleshly, carnal desires. I'd rather lie than have God. I'd rather be sexually perverted than have God. I'd rather steal than have God. And men live like that. And He destroyed the Jewish temple. He judged them. And then He told Zechariah, Look, you're going to rebuild it in My name. If not for only the purpose 
so that Jesus may come and say, I don't really want Him. Because you might ask yourself, why did they go through all the work anyway? They rebuilt the temple. Come on, there was no more glory there. There wasn't the ark there. Why did they go through it anyway? Why did God even tell them to do it? It was destroyed in 70 AD. Why? Just so Jesus could stand in the place that they thought was most sacred and say, it's not this temple, it's this temple, and I'll rise it again. He was teaching them that God always wanted to fellowship with man. Not with bricks and stones and fellowship with man. Not with animals and hand washings and dietary laws and fellowship with man. It was just Adam and Eve in a garden holding his hand in the cool of the day. And Jesus was saying, that's what it's going to go back to. I'm coming to bring it. And that's what you have now, my friends. That's what salvation is. Salvation is the reunion of what once used to be separated. The two now are at peace, as Zechariah said. Man, in God. And let our heart now be the cry of Psalms 27. The cry of David, who only knew God in certain seasons. If we see through a glass dimly, how much more so he. But yet David encompassed a king and a priest very similar to us. And this was his heart for God. Psalms 27.4 One thing I ask of the Lord... This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek His face. Your face, Lord, I will Seek. Just close your eyes today in a heart of worship and hear what your heart is saying. Can you hear your heart crying out? Seek God. Seek God. Seek the Lord in His face. Can you hear the Lord speaking to your heart today? Seek me. Seek me and I will be found. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. I hear the Lord calling us to a higher place, to a deeper relationship. Oh, Jesus.
Let your will be done. Let your will be done. 